You're listening to Brave New Space. I'm Robert. I'm Keegan. And we're going to share with you all things new space and beyond. Why we started this podcast. Brave New Space is about sharing insights and perspectives on the business and commerce of all things space to global investors and entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage more investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to consider participating in this space renaissance. Today, we rejoin Marshall Culpepper for the final time, and we'll be going over some of the old war stories we have from Robert and I and Marshall's time in the space industry. I wanted to maybe just pivot a little bit on the emerging verticals, but you know, we, you had hinted about manufacturing, but what some people might not realize is there's already a little bit of manufacturing going on on space and, and still relatively small, but uh, very meaningful ways on the space station. They have a 3D printer, and I think they're bringing up a machine to recycle plastic. Is that correct? Yeah, I can't remember if I know that uh, Made in Space has developed uh, both t- sets of technology. But to my knowledge, the 3D printer that is on the space station is the only thing that is built by Made in Space right now. So that's uh, friends of the team, Made in Space, have developed this platform. They launched it back in 2010, I believe, mostly funded through the venture arm of Lowe's, the you know large big box hardware store company. So we could get into uh, strange places that uh, money in this industry comes from from at a later time. But that's the first real case we've seen at continuous use of additive manufacturing in space. And for the most part, it's being used for just fixing and making replacement parts of all the little bits and bobs that uh, are on the ISS. Because every gram of material that goes to the space station costs thousands of dollars just for what it has to go on top of. So the astronauts on board the International Space Station have gotten a lot of use out of this already. But we are seeing how this technology will continue to evolve. And some of the proposals that Made in Space, Tethers Unlimited, and half a dozen other companies have already kind of pushed forward on. Redworks, was uh, my company, was originally founded to try to solve an additive manufacturing problem in space. And we ended up, you know, pulling the well, let's make our money on Earth first <laughs> plan instead. But uh, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think in space manufacturing, there's like a ton of opportunity for sure. I mean, the Made in Space and Space Pharma and quite a few other people are doing some really interesting things right now in terms of not just 3D printing, but like everything from like telecommunications equipment and, and sort of infrastructure to uh, pharma, even the pharmaceutical idea, I think is super interesting. There's a lot of apparently really great properties of microgravity for creating and transferring certain chemical substances. You can, um, you can really eliminate errors or very, very, uh, very quickly pare down the errors uh, on a lot of these manufacturing processes. And so while the cost of getting the materials to space is high, the return that you get in terms of efficiency is maybe even higher. Super interesting. The whole space biotech is still a pretty small vertical, but the results oh, yeah. it could yield once someone really starts to put their foot down in that industry is going to be really, really interesting to watch. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's two parts to that. One is like the technology itself has to evolve. I think that Space Farm is obviously relatively early and there's others like them that are still relatively early as well. But, you know, we're going to lose the ISS as a commercial platform pretty soon. Like, not next year, but, you know, in the next, what is it, three or four years? Is it 2024? Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember. The, the, the station isn't going, it, well, the station is going somewhere. The Russians want half, basically half the platform for them, uh, back for themselves now. Right. So, so like, you know, politics aside, I mean, I think in order to, for the long term, you know, health of in, in space manufacturing, I, I do think 
what's really been proven by the ISS more than anything, it seems to me, is like the commercial viability of the space station. What you know, regardless of its political ambitions or or even its scientific ambitions, I think it has proven to be a, a boon for commercial industry. Even even going back to just like Nanorex, like using it as a deployment platform for satellites. Absolutely, and the it, the work that was done for commercial R and D is not is not nothing either. Zero Gravity Solutions was a company founded in the late '90s, and they were like one of the fir- yep. first uh, biotech companies to actually you know make money off of R and D being done on the ISS. So, well, I think what I think what it boils down to, I think that you look at how much money has been spent and has been made off of commercially off of the ISS, and it's pretty clear that like. There needs to be a private commercial space station. Like I, I, I think it's pretty obvious. Stations, I think, is what we would all really prefer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, multiple would be great. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's pretty clear. There's like a pretty clear business case there. Absolutely, and that's going to be yeah. an interesting vertical to watch as low cost, large fairing launch starts to become a thing in the ne- next few years. So when we talk about low cost launch, we often neglect to mention the fact that the fairing sizes, in other words, how how big the action, how much volume the actual thing you're sending in orbit can be, is still pretty constrained. But now that we've got new platforms like the new Glenn, uh, Falcon he- Falcon Heavy, fingers crossed BFR, you might be able to start sending up very large space habitats inside of the next 10 years. I mean, I remember uh, what's uh, Bigelow Aerospace uh, had des- has designs on the books and built like a scale prototype of a spacecraft with something like twice the volume of the International Space Station inside of one module. Yeah. Uh, 2,100 yeah. square meters, if I, uh, cubic meters, if I remember right. Yeah, sounds right. And it would be wonderful to see whether it's government or private sponsored, someone do some experimentation using artificial gravity or, or very, I should say variable adjusting platform. Could even start with something small for uh, small mammals. Yeah, the the problem with artificial gravity in space, and this is where Marshall and me get, might get on our engineering soapboxes a little bit there, is that the if you're doing like a donut, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey style habitat ring, you know, a little ring kind of thing that spins on its axis and develops a centripetal force, the ring actually has to be quite large. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're talking hundreds of meters uh, or else the relative gravity you experience at your head will be significantly lower than what it is at your feet. So you you every time you try to run, you'll kind of you'll put up more force and kind of launch yourself and you'll end up uh, going ass over tea kettle on yourself in uh, zero G. So you need a fairly large spacecraft to do that. Yeah, I agree we need to experiment. Like that, I think that was why you mentioned small mammals, right? Like if you can the amount of the amount of force needed for a much smaller animal uh, may actually be less. And there might be uh, advantages to being able to create not completely microgravity, but to spin up a module of some kind to create at least a little more gravity than is currently experienced to kind of get a sweet spot for any type of biomaterial growth. If you're sending up a bioreactor of some kind that maybe creates insulin crystals or some kind of uh, genetically engineered alternative to, I don't know, aloe vera or something like that, being able to just initiate partial microgravity might be something that is just that much more useful. So not dismissing the use case, just uh, reminding everyone that if you're trying to do it with humans, you've got to make a really, really big spacecraft. For a second, I'd like to loop back around to in-space servicing or that entire discussion. I think one thing we kind of passed over, which I think we we should probably spend a second on, is this idea that like a secondary spacecraft could actually take you to the orbit you want once you're off of your primary spacecraft. Yes, the space tug, Uh, something NASA has been begging for for decades and never really gets enough attention. Yeah, the you know there's been a few early versions of this that I think the 
the one that has received some presses the was it the dream was it the dream chaser what what do they call it it was the maybe it wasn't the snc uh, spacecraft but it was one that was part of the iss resupply mission that would stay docked after the resupply and could take more supplies afterwards and still have fuel to burn to take it to a higher order i'm pretty sure it wasn't the dream chaser it wasn't the cygnus was it yeah, it may have been Cygnus. Yeah, I was trying to remember the name of the spacecraft. Yeah, that's the uh, that's European Space Agency, right? Yeah, and so that I think that was just like an early proof of concept. But the you know there are a lot of startups all now, now all of a sudden, and including even launch providers that are offering secondary spacecraft as part of their launch option that will literally take you to a different orbit once the rocket gets where it's going. And that's an interesting play because you know. There's not very many launch providers that are very nimble in terms of their launch, you know, exact altitude or exact, I just forgot the term. Inclination. Thank you. The angle of inclination. And so I I do think that's interesting because you can, now you can sort of just take a ride in the vicinity and now you can get to wherever you want to go a little bit, a little bit more precisely. There is a private company that's actually working on a space tug for reasonably sized payloads. And that's a uh, momentous space founded by a friend yep. of the show, uh, Nagar Ferrer. And yep. they're working on uh, their platform is actually really interesting because they're looking at an electrical propulsion system, which normally requires a very expensive, very rare, very hard to store and very toxic uh, noble gas to propel the whole thing. So like xenon or neon gas or something like that. And they've figured out how to create an electrical propulsion system whose fuel is water. So using water vapor as your propellant system, which makes the whole process infinitely easier. And their business model is essentially a private space tug, being able to tow satellites into higher orbits, different inclinations. I mean, the need for that is quite quite significant because unless you've really got got some money to burn for a Falcon Heavy or a Delta IV Heavy... Since we lost the shuttle, going upwards to Geo has gotten just that much more difficult. Yeah. Well, I, and you know, I think an even more interesting an interesting comparator to that would be what Rocket Lab is doing with their additional spacecraft at the nose cone of the launcher. Oh yes. Okay. You know, it's a very similar in some ways to Momentus, just because it's integrated into the rocket, and it, they also have avionics on board, and so you can almost look at it like a full spacecraft bus as much as a secondary yep. launch vehicle. And then you have former GLXP companies like Astrobotic. So uh, Astrobotic, which uh, actually bought and brought a payload most of the way to the moon, uh, not too recently. You could consider those another uh, example of secondary spacecraft, possibly even tertiary spacecraft, maybe piggybacking, maybe sending one of those up on a relatively small payload and then piggybacking them on to a space tug might end up being the more cost effective way long term, especially if that space tug is permanently stationed in orbit in the first place. Yep. All right. uh, We are at an hour in, folks. I think this is going to end up getting broken down into two shows easily. (laughs) But, you know, we didn't really get to talk at all. And it was about Cubos. Yes. All right, Marshall. I mean, like, I think I think we should at least I think Marshall yeah. should at least share a we bit should. about it. Yes, Marshall. Please, for, please forgive us. We did not mean to forget about yeah. you. But uh, <laughs> take take the next five ten that. minutes if you like to shamelessly horror your company. <laughs> we're we're all space nerds here, so there's plenty of plenty of topics to cover that we're all very excited about. So I don't take it personally. Yeah. So Cubos, we're a satellite software company. We really do focus on some of the software layers in the industry where we see a, there's a potential horizontal opportunity to essentially, you know, own the end to end, the end to end development process of a mission. And so we started our company, the namesake of our company, Cubos, is like the the Greek root for the word cube and also happens to stand for CubeOS, which is the name of our first product. It's an open source operating system that you know, we, we think of standardization in terms of 
uh, vendor standards. And so we created this open source project to start getting all the different satellite manufacturers to standardize on a specific set of flight software and subsystem and ground integrations. When we first started, you know, we were a handful of people in in a startup accelerator called Lightspeed Innovations, but we eventually made it into uh, four different satellite manufacturers that are actually distributing that software today. It's uh, ISIS and Pumpkin and Oakman Aerospace and yeah and Ruag. And so those manufacturers are, you know, in a very similar way to the way that Android phones come with Android. Um, the satellite buses come with CubeOS pre, uh, sort of pre-burned onto the hardware. And that is a really powerful thing for the space industry because now you can write your mission software, have multiple, multiple different applications, multiple different uh, manufacturers and sort of a diversified supply chain even, and really just take that software wherever you take your engineering. And um, that's a really exciting thing that is really common in other areas of information technology, especially in PCs and, um, you know, servers and all the like. But, you know, now we finally have that same level of portability and accessibility in the space industry. And as we talked about uh, earlier, this type of software is normally something that has to be developed kind of from scratch from in-house. This has been a need that uh, the industry hasn't really, you know, had to think of for a long t- time, and now you're providing operating systems for satellites. Yeah, that's right. And uh, our community has grown by leaps and bounds over the last several years. We're up to, I think we just crossed 600, or we're like right at 600 members in our open source community now. Just to double check, we're talking 600 members, not just 600 satellites from a handful of companies. Now that is impressive. Yeah, yeah. No, these are all individual people inside our open source community. And they're everything from you know, traditional aerospace engineers to software engineers to uh, management and systems engineers, all, all of the above. And so we started this project in late 2014. So I guess it's been almost five years since we started the project. And then the second thing we did is sort of, this is like where my open source and sort of commercial startup background come into play is, you know, if you, if you create an open source thing that you want to start standardizing, you still have to make money on it somehow. You know, you can't just give away things for free and hope money falls from the sky, unfortunately. And so in the open source world, especially in other tech industries, it's very common to have an open source core infrastructure piece that is sort of the way that you get market traction or market sort of cover a a large swath of a market. And then you use those people that are using your open source project as a way to springboard yourself into a much better position for a commercial offering on top of that open source project. And so we debuted our first, our first extended product on top of QoS called major Tom about two years ago. And it's, um, a SaaS platform. It's literally uh, mission operations in the cloud. And, you know, we're, I think the first company to think of this idea that if you have software on one end of the spectrum, it should work with software on the other end of the spectrum, like out of the box. Um, this is like a very common thing in other technology circles, but in the space industry, again, because we don't tend to think about software until the last minute, it always ends up being a last minute or like very custom job. Whereas our flight software, you know, is modular. Yeah, it ends up being something that your uh, software also ends up being something that you're lucky if it ends up having any kind of legacy tech to it as well. I mean, most of the projects I've seen that have involved software in the space industry, you yep. end up having to kind of reinvent the wheel on each project. So what you're providing is essentially is essentially a plug and play solution. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And so people that use our flight software, essentially, they, they can buy Major Tom and not have to do any sort of command definitions or telemetry data formats or custom levels of code and integration with their flight software because we support it out of the box, you know, and that's kind of the way we think about what our opportunity is. is this idea that 
software at every stage of the the satellite lifecycle should be integrated uh, in a very meaningful way. Uh, ultimately, what we're trying to build here is this idea that you could virtualize spacecraft and, and sort of turn them into software-defined infrastructure. But this, in my opinion, the space industry is not quite ready for that yet, even though it's clear what benefits would come from it. I think that uh, getting people to understand how software could really change the their spacecraft would require would require to basically move them down the field of, of software in their spacecraft in terms of just like letting go of that custom software and, and really going to an outside vendor for it. And so our, our first step is to just get as many satellites as we can running our software. And then as soon as that happens, it's much easier from that juxtaposition to sort of enable new uh, software-defined capabilities once a lot of them are already running our software. It's going to be really interesting to watch how the industry, you know, as the nanosatellite market continues to mature, watching how companies are going to have to, like we said, let go of that desire to keep everything entirely in-house. And that's going to be a hard thing for a lot of engineers <laughs> to get over and uh, be able to be able to be willing to do. But I think it's going to be something that has to happen for this industry to continue to grow and scale and for for new solutions to be uploaded to existing satellite platforms without a whole lot of engineer back and forth between multiple companies. This is really an important solution for continuing to reduce barriers of entry to new startups. Yeah, and one, I mean, I, I don't want to spend too much more time here, but one of the interesting things, so there's a there's a lot, a lot of places you can draw a line in the sand with regards to... <laughs> oh, God, right? Yeah. What I call uh, NIH syndrome, uh, not invented here syndrome. And, you know, engineers, I'm, I am one, so I can say so. I, we, we have this problem in spades. But the what's interesting to me is like, again, going back to how I think about market segmentation as well, there is a tried and true decision process in the space industry that's had this this existed for 20, 30 years now, which is like if you're building a spacecraft, you buy VXWorks because VXWorks is the safety critical real time operating system you use to run spacecraft. Like that, that answer has been around for a very long time. And Wind River Systems, which is a multi billion dollar software company, has really reaped the benefits of. Lockheed Martin and Boeing and literally any major defense prime you can shake a stick at choosing this core operating system as the de facto OS for all their spacecraft. And, and so that I, you know, there's some level of for sure, like custom software in every mission, especially when you start talking about flight software, but there's also quite a bit of history of taking off the shelf stuff that exists and, and spending quite a lot of money on it. Yeah, and this is a problem you see in almost any industry that is, uh, you know, we. it's weird talking about the private space industry as being, you know, still kind of in its infancy, even though it's been around for as long as the computer industry has been. And I mean that quite literally. I mean, the, we all forget the integrated circuit is about 20 years younger than the modern than the modern rocket. Even longer, actually. But we're still in that phase to where there are not a lot of mid-market solutions available for a lot of new companies that want to be able to break in. You either got really, really low-key, off-the-shelf, down-market solutions that are kind of cannibalized and put together on their own, or like the providers of uh, Lockheed Martin are putting forward, really, really high-end stuff that not everybody can break into. And what we're seeing right now in this industry is the emergence of that mid-market series of options. Yep, I would agree. All right. I want to thank Marshall Culpepper for joining us today to discuss some of the verticals of the space ecosystem and my co-host, Keegan. So thanks so much. We will continue to bring you more insights and, and other interviews. Great having you, Marshall. Thank you, guys. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, 
is coming out soon, and I want you to get a sneak preview of it, head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com, for a first look. Thank you for listening to Brave New Space. This is Robert and Keegan. On the next episode of Brave New Space, we'll be discussing the challenge of whether to build or to fly and going over the satellite manufacturers and launch providers who are playing in each other's industries. 